o'clock. Let's do this. Because you know, like, we, I, I want to get you out in time for lunch. I said that yesterday. I feel like I took care of you. So today we're going to do the same thing. So we're going to get you out in time for lunch. Um, hey, you guys were here last time. Yeah, some of you have been here before. Thanks for coming back. New people, thank you as well. Um, my name's Luke. I didn't meet you already. Uh, hey, Barry in the back. How's it going? Yeah, so this is uh, Barry and I are part of the same congregation in Austin. Uh, he was an elder until a few years ago, and then he got voted off. Um, <laughs> there's some questions about exactly how that happened, but uh, we've, we've all had to sign uh, non-disclosure forms, so I can't really talk about it. But uh, Barry, I'm glad that the, uh, that the band from the campus has gotten lifted so you could be back this year. And I'm not the same non-disclosure form, so I can talk about Jesus. Exactly, that's how I like it. That's how I like it. Okay, um... For if you want. Thanks for mm -hmm. Check. One, two. I think it's working. Do you want to talk louder? No. I, I, can, can you hear me? Yeah, I think we're okay. Thank you very much for your help. Okay, so uh, first session, I did a lot of talking. Kind of told a lot of my story. Uh, I'd like to kind of do some more engagement uh, this time. And so I'm going to talk for a while. I'm going to ask some questions. And so I'm actually going to assume that um, we have a dialogue. So I like, I, like, I talk do monologues every Sunday for a living. And so I enjoy kind of engagement. I think that's a little different from what I usually do. And so I enjoy it. So I'm going to talk for a while and then I'm going to stop and we're going to ask those questions or follow up. And so if you want to do that, have those questions ready and then we can kind of go back and forth. Um, uh, so what I started with last, uh, last session was the idea that, that God doesn't always live up to your expectations of what, what good is. If you were God for a day, what would you do? And we listed off things like, and hurt, and all hurting, make everyone feel loved. Uh, there's a lot of the uh, Miss America question or answers that came up as well. When this question has been asked other places, you know, in poverty and hunger. But we hear all these things, and this is what I would do if I was God, which is our way of saying this is a good thing for God to do. But you take a look around and you go, God hasn't done any of that. Your definitions of what a good thing that God should do isn't happening. And at some point you have to make a, make a, a realization that, that God is not always going to be what you think God should be. And that's not a new idea for us. This is all throughout Scripture where you have the, the Jewish prophets going, how long, Lord, until you, you do something? Um, Habakkuk saying, after God said, I'm going to use the, uh, the Chaldeans, the Neo-Babylonian Empire, to destroy you. That's my plan. And, and, he, and Habakkuk goes, or Habakkuk, as Dr. Mark Hamilton told me to say when I was at ACU, uh, as Habakkuk said, but you're too holy. You're too pure. You can't do this, God. Doesn't always work, and so the question becomes like, what do you, what do you do? And, and for some of us, we found we found a way to kind of put our faith back together. Okay, this isn't what it's supposed to be in my opinion, but this is what it is, and I can make peace with this, and I can thrive in this. And others, we see, faith has been something that that's untenable. And I, I assume there's some of us in this room who are here because we want to have more resources and be better equipped to help the people that we love and care about so much for them to be allowed. Uh, conversations I've had already this week are, you know, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to buy a copy of your book because I've got uh, a kid who's walked away from church and walked away from God. And, and, and I want to help them figure out how, how does it make sense? How can, how can this not be the, the option for you? And so I want to kind of have a conversation about what would help in that situation. And, and maybe it's for some of us right here or maybe it's for some people that we love, but it's the same, the same idea. But there's got to be a way to do it. 
And so I said this yesterday, but often what happens with suffering and love is that both of those things make us say things, but it's opposite things. When we fall in love, we make promises. We make promises. Like one of my friends back in college, he got married, and one of his promises that he made during his, his wedding was, I'm always going to woo you. And I thought, that's just a weird thing to say. I'm going to woo you. Woo you. Like, that seems uncomfortable. Um, I'm always, you're always going to be my best friend. We're always going to go on dates together. I'm always going to be there for you. And we, we make these promises. Love makes us promise, but adversity and suffering makes us question. Nancy Kerrigan, when she got her knee hit, 1994, Tanya Harding incident. She's caught on camera and she's saying, why? Why? We see that in the psalmist over and over again. Why, oh Lord, how long, oh Lord, must I wait? Why? Suffering makes us ask the question, why? How? What do you think? Uh, I, I was talking to a, a guy who wrote a book called uh, Managing Anxiety, uh, Managing Leadership Anxiety. And he used family systems to talk about how you, you deal with anxiety in leadership. And he says, often when there's a problem, we respond on the first level. And he says the first level is content. So, theoretically, if I was in the elders meeting, and I had an elder who was saying to me, this is what we should do. I'm like, no, no, this is what we should do. And then we go back and forth, back and forth. And both of us are just saying, no, no, this is what we should do. This is what we should do. And we're on the content level. I'm giving you content, and you're giving content back to me. And we're going back and forth, and no one's going anywhere. And what he says is sometimes you need to move from the content, the first level order, to the second level, which is the changing the dynamic. And so you move from just trying to wrestle back and forth over who has the right content and move to a different way of dealing Christ. And sometimes when it comes to these questions about God, you need to move from just the content to a different level. Uh, I've got this thing where I do weddings, and when I'm preparing a wedding sermon, like for the most part, I'm going to be honest, like it's the same wedding sermon, but here's my trick. I have five questions that I give the bride and the groom about their future spouse. Like, what do you love most? Why'd you fall in love with them? Five words to describe them. And then, like, I do those first, and everyone's like, oh, that is such a personal wedding. And I'm like, I know it is. And then I just say the same stuff in the second half. So I thought that's what every time. And so I've given these questions, like, to so many people. I've given them to my brother during both, for both of his weddings. I've given them to my grandma when I did her second marriage uh, after my grandpa passed away. Friends, so many people. Not one person has ever said, Luke, I can't answer the question of why I fell in love with my future spouse. Like, you've, like that's, a, that's not a hard, is that a hard question? No, like it seems like it's an easy question. Only one person, and it was my friend Joel. My friend Joel sends me a message. I send these to him, sends me a message. He's, he's in Boston at the time. We, we met in West Texas. And he said, I, dude, these are just hard questions. I, I, don't, I don't know how to answer these questions. And so I'm like, all right, I've known Joel since he was in high school. We, uh, we used to work out together when I was in, in, in uh, uh, an undergrad and he was in high school. We'd work out at the same gym and he, he got to school and he was a baseball player. And so I wanted to help my, you know, my simple-minded friend Joel. He's just a meathead. And so I couldn't, he couldn't answer these questions. So I called my friend Joel, who's in Boston at the time because he's currently the chief resident of orthopedic surgery at, uh, at Harvard's teaching hospital, uh, oh. Mass General. So he's an idiot, but uh, he's also now like doing surgeries on professional athletes in Dallas. So that's my friend Joel. And so I, I get my phone out to call him because he can't answer these questions of what do I love about Katarina? And he can't answer it. And before I call him, I check my email. And he sends me this letter. 
He sends me an email. And this is what he says to me. Luke, you were there the day I had a life-changing decision. When I got the call from the scout, and the next day he wanted me on a plane to spring. Side note, not only is this guy chief resident of orthopedic surgery at the time in, uh, for Harvard, he was also an All-American baseball player and got drafted in the 20th rounds by the New York Mets while we were working out together in the gym one day. He goes, you were there the day I got that, and he wanted me on the plane the next day he was spring training. Um, but I was more excited to go to medical school than play professional baseball. He goes on to say this. I don't tell many people this. Side note, I put it in my book. So yeah, you, you're doing that now. Sorry, Joe. I don't tell many people this. But after I turned down the New York Mets, I was so excited to go to Tulane. I packed my bags and went down to New Orleans, ready to start a brand new adventure. I had a friend I met at ACU where we both went to school. He had transferred for a year because of Hurricane Katrina. There you go, you know that. He was also starting medical school. School. We were going to be roommates. He told me that he had already had a place and a room for me. I drive down to ride, and what do I find? What does he tell me? Sorry, bud, we don't have a room for you. The guy in your room isn't moving out, but we have a futon for you to sleep on if you want. A few weeks go by as I'm sleeping on a futon, basically in a frat house, and I'm asking myself, what have I done? I just turned down the New York Mets. One morning, my phone rings. Wakes me up with my futon. I don't recognize the number. I answer, and it's one of the New York Mets scouts in front of office men. He says, Joel, we want you and need you on the roster. What is it? How can you turn down your dream? I told him it wasn't the money and that I had made my decision. I am becoming a surgeon. I never asked what the second offer was. That day I told myself I'm not giving up. I went and found an amazing condo in the French Quarter. Moved off of futon, and I also started my program that week, a combined MDMPH program. I'm not sure what an MPH program is. I assume it's fast, though. Miles Brown. Let me say my joke, guys. I was, I was setting up my joke. I like that joke. I don't know what an MPH program is, but it must be fast. Well, it's funny. In my first MPH, uh, technically it's medical. No. As I was saying. In my first MPH class the first day, Katarina walks in. A bit late, she took my breath away. She was beautiful. We were introduced to each other by one of our friends, and I remember that day exactly, July 7th, 2006. And that day, she gave me a ride home, and I asked her if she wanted to grab something to eat one night. We did, and ever since then, we have been best friends. I thank God every day for her. I get asked often, do you regret turning down the Mets? I can wholeheartedly say, no. I never would have met Katarina. I didn't turn down my dream. I am living it. So upon reading this, I realized that I hate myself. He's not only smarter, more athletic, but he's a better writer than me, too. <laughs> and then I thought to myself, I want someone like that to marry my daughters. Um, what I asked him for were answers. Answer these five simple questions. Give me five words to describe your spouse. Tell me what you're looking forward to most. He, he couldn't give me the answers for what he could give me. It's a story. He gave me something better than answers. He gave me a story. Now, Francis, Francis Spuford, in his book, Unapologetic, he writes this. He says, we don't say that God's in his heaven and all's well with the world. Not deep down. We say all is not well with the world, but at least God is here in it with us. We don't have an argument that solves the problem of the cruel world, but we have a story. Story. 
Now, we're people who live in the aftermath of the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment has taught us many great things. It has built bridges. It has created Wi-Fi. But what this sort of hard, rational thinking can do is it can't tell us why we want to cr cross a river and get to someone that's so far away from us. It can't explain why we feel this deep need to be connected to someone that we can only connect to through something online. It can't tell us there's something more. And the power of what story does is stories aren't to give us pieces of trivia. Stories are to invite us into a new world. They're to invite us into seeing and experiencing life in a different way. And what I think Spieford is saying is that ultimately we don't have answers to rationalize why any and everything happens in the world and why God doesn't live up to our definition of what a good God should be. But what we do have is a story of God becoming one of us. Of becoming the very nature of a servant being found in appearance as a man and humbling himself to death and death on a cross. What we have is a story. And so the invitation for us is not to always expect answers that resolve the questions that adversity and, and struggle give us, but a story that invites us to experience the world different. And so the question becomes, how do we stay tied to this story when everything doesn't work the way we think it should? Now I think that becomes a question, what, what are spiritual practices for? All right, let me tell you uh, uh, about prayer, or at least how I got introduced to prayer. Uh, when, uh, when I was in um, uh, fifth grade, I was living in Philadelphia, and I got in one little fight, and I broke my front teeth. And so I have fake front teeth. Like, they're, they're actually there. They're not a hologram, but these are not the teeth that, that I was born with. And so I had to get uh, like a replacement set of teeth. And so I moved uh, a few years later, and I'm in, in junior high. I'm now in uh, 10th grade. And one day there was like this cold breath, like I, I felt like this cold breeze in my mouth. I was actually uh, on a date uh, with this young lady, and uh, I was on my back porch, and this is this, this girl that uh, I really liked. And so we're sitting in the back porch, and I noticed this breeze in my mouth, but I, I don't think anything of it. And so I take this bite of uh, peanut butter and jelly sandwich. That's what we're eating because I'm a romantic. And what happened is in the midst of chewing that, my front tooth became dislodged, and I swallowed it. And I don't know about you, but that's one of those things that's hard to like, recover from on a date, like if you <laughs> swallow your front tooth. Um, but that happened to me. And so what happens is like, I have like this little nub right here in my mouth. It, it's like this. Like, do you remember like an, an iPod mini? You know what those look like? They're just like this big. Like if a real tooth is this big, like an iPod mini would be like that. Like that's like my tooth situation right here. Like this is the fake tooth that I have right now, but the iPod mini is what God gave me. That's what's there. And so I have this little nub, and uh, so I have to go get a new tooth. And the problem is when you get a temporary tooth, or at least this is how dental uh, practice worked like 20 years ago, is the craftsmanship that they use to give you a temporary tooth is not the same level of craftsmanship of a permanent tooth. And so I went to school one week with three different sets of front teeth, right? And I'm not saying like the one that I was working with like looked like terrible, but it's just like we knew it didn't belong, right? Like it'd be like if you walk out of this room and you saw a Kardashian in the library, you're like, it's okay, you're here, but we know you don't belong. Like that was, that was my two situation. And I go to school, and there's this girl in my class, and her name uh, was Missy, it's still Missy, um, but I was not allowed to use that in the book for a reason you'll know in a second. 
Um, she decided that I looked like I had a piece of chiclet gum in my, my mouth. And so she started calling me chiclet. And you know kids in, in 10th grade are also nice to each other. False, that is a lie. They're all mean. And so for the rest of the day, everyone calls me chiclet, chiclet. All because of who? Missy, which I believe is short for Miss Satan. Um, and she makes fun of all, and so the whole day, chiclet, chiclet, chiclet. Now let me tell you the rest of the story. Missy plays third base for our high school's softball team. And so she is at softball practice taking grounders at the hot corner. And there is a ball that hits something on the ground. And as she's trying to feel this grounder, it hit this rock and took what some people called a bad bounce. I was not one of the people who called it a bad bounce. <laughs> and you know where it hit her? Right in the mouth and it broke her front tooth. And let me tell you something. That's the day I started believing in prayer. <laughs> Like, there's an idea like prayer, like, it gets you what you want. Like, this villain to get what she deserves. Or sometimes it's even, like, more, like, godly things like a, a job, someone to answer a phone call, someone to feel like, hey, I'm there for you. But what if prayer isn't just about us getting what we want, but it's more about tying us to that story? That, that what prayer does is it ties us to this, this story that changes how we experience life. So the metaphor I used yesterday was that for me, my faith, like I grew up trying to build like the sandcastle to keep all the questions and the doubt and the mystery out. And every time I went to, to read a book or to, to study scripture or, or to learn anything, the whole goal was to keep unknowing out. And eventually I realized that's not going to work because the water I was so afraid of was not water that was trying to destroy me, but deliver me. But, but in the moment when, when you can't make sense of everything, it, it doesn't feel like you're being delivered. Sometimes you just feel like you're out in the ocean and you got nothing to hold on to. You ever been there? There's a guy named John Aldridge. And he and his childhood best friend, his name is Anthony Szynski, for two decades uh, left Long Island where they lived to take a uh, overnight, two-day overnight um, trip out to sea where they were commercial fishermen. So they've done this two decades. And one night, uh, it was John's turn to be uh, the one up getting everything ready for the, the morning's uh, fishing. And so they're 40 miles off the coast. Anthony is down below sleeping. And Aldridge is trying to move this 200-pound um, cooler from one side of the boat to the other. And so he's moving this 200-pound cooler. It's full of ice. And so if you're trying to move a 200-pound cooler, you're, like, you're going to put your body into it. And so he is uh, on the back of the boat. He's pulling this cooler. And it's 200-pound cooler. And so he's pulling as hard as he can. And the handle breaks. And all the momentum he was using to pull a 200-pound cooler is now directed just at him. And so he goes right over the back of the boat, 40 miles out to sea, starts yelling, but he knows Anthony's sleeping below deck and the diesel engine is not going to be overcome by the sound of his voice. And so there he is, middle of the night, 40 miles off the coast. And so what he starts doing is he's got to strip off his clothes that are pulling him up. So he takes off his jacket, waterlogged jacket, gets it off, and then he starts to take his boots off. And he realizes these are the same boots that, like, all of his friends made fun of him because they were extra thick. Like, they're kind of boots that most fishermen didn't wear. They're insulated. Uh, they're these green insulated boots. And as he's starting to take them off, he notices something. He takes them off, and he starts to go under the water. And he looks at these boots, and he realizes that these boots are flotation devices. 
And so he puts them under his armpit. And for the next 18 hours, he stays afloat until this massive like, uh, search and rescue process finally finds him. This, this process was so big that even, um, who, who's the it's five o'clock somewhere? What's his name? Jimmy Buffett? His boat actually got commandeered for this. Because the whole, like everyone and everyone was looking for this guy. And they thought there was no chance to find him. But the only reason they found him is because of the green boots. The very same boots that are now tattooed on his father's arm. Because, they, because his father knew that's what kept his boy alive. And for all of us, there are going to be times that you feel like you've lost everything that, that, that orients you. And you're going to feel like John Aldrich, you're out in the middle of the ocean, 40 miles from the shore, and you need something to keep you afloat. And I would argue that's what spiritual formation, that's what these spiritually formative practices are supposed to be. They're not used to get you what you want. They're not to get your enemies to have their front teeth broken. What they're to do is they're to tie you to the story that changes how you see and experience the world. These practices are supposed to give you a picture of what life is. I had someone tell me uh, recently that if you want to know how good, how did he say this? He said, um, the first question I ask of any married couple to see how they're doing is what's your sex life like? And the first question I ask any person struggling with their faith is, what is your prayer life? Now, both of those things aren't the, the totality of what a relationship with your spouse or with God. But they are practices that connect you to that, that entity, that being, that person. Uh, when I was uh, a sophomore in college, I, I walked on to ACU's track team. And I, they were way too good for me to be on the track team. I mean, there's four people that were on this track team that were uh, in the Olympics in Atlanta. I mean, they're way better than what I should have um, been able to be on a team with. And I still remember a conversation that first fall. Uh, it was uh, a Friday afternoon, and there was a guy named Jason Pran, who was an All-State quarterback, but he was like 5'9", 5'10". And that time, he wasn't going to get any Division I offers at his height. But he was an outstanding 400-meter hurdler, which in my opinion was the hardest race in track and field. And Jason was a four-time All-American, a national champion multiple times, indoor-outdoor, uh, just an absolute stud athlete. So there I am, walk on, new to the team. Jason Pratt is a, is a senior, All-American national champion. And he walks over to me, he goes, Luke, look around. And I looked around, and the field house, the, the, the weight room, was empty. It's Friday afternoon. He goes, look around. Go, yeah, yeah, there's no one here. And he goes, Friday afternoon, that's the difference of being an All-American and being a national champion. And also for me, a lack of athletic abilities was prevented me from being either of those things. <laughs> but for someone who's a good athlete like him, the difference of being an All-American and a national championship is being there when you don't want to. This is what athletes know. I was talking to a friend from my church who is one of those ultra-marathon people. Uh, my dad's a psychologist, so we would diagnose this as a mental disorder. Um, but he's one of those guys who, who's running the... Uh, have you ever heard of the Leadville uh, Marathon? It's like this... this Stupid, stupid, like you're running, like it's just ridiculous. And so he does this for fun. And so last Sunday morning, I said, how, how, how far did you run? He goes, oh, I did 40. What? You ran a 40? No, I ran 40 miles. I'm like, bro, you, start smoking or something. Like that's, that's better for your health than that. And so he, this is this super competitive athlete. And he was going through a um, tough season in his family. And his faith was struggling. And I asked him, what, what does prayer like look like? What does prayer look like for you now? He was saying it's just hard to pray. 
Like, it, it's hard to pray right now. And I said, I, I gave him the Friday afternoon speech. So you're an athlete. You know there are days you don't want to go train. But if you want to run the Leadville Marathon, you've got to be out there in days that even you don't want to. Yeah, I get that. Because the thing about it, spiritual formation and the thing about having faith when things fall apart is that there are going to be times you don't want to get out there. But as any athlete knows, the difference of having a faith that's vibrant and one that becomes dormant isn't just what you think, it's what you do. You know, how many of you uh, this week would say, I I've heard a sermon I thought was really good, like really moving sermon? Anyone? Yes? Uh, any of you uh, hear Sarah Barton last night? Okay? Very great sermon. Very good sermon. And let me ask you a question. How many of you, before that sermon, were on the fence if you thought sort of sexual predatory behavior was good or bad? You weren't really sure what you thought about that, right? How many of us were thinking, you know, I, I think if a king wants to, he should be able to have unconsensual sex with anyone that they choose. Like, I don't think anyone was, was on the fence about that. I don't think this was new information for any of us. But what it did is it said things that we probably all felt but didn't know how to articulate. Right? She communicated what was in here with me in a way that I haven't been able to before. Uh, one of the things that, that I found over and over again is that a good sermon is less about giving you new information, but it's about articulating what you already believe. Uh, there's a uh, University of Virginia psychologist named Jonathan Haidt. And he's written uh, a, a few really good books. Uh, he wrote a book called um, The Happiness Hypothesis, which is a great book. And then The Righteous Mind, uh, which is a really fascinating book about uh, sort of the political diversion, uh, uh, discourse right now. Uh, but one of the things that he's argued, and he, he builds this off other people's ideas as well. Um, but when it comes to making decisions, we often think that we make these cold, hard, rational choices. Right? Like this is the Aristotelian idea that it's just going to be logic that's going to dictate. Like I'm going to make a good logical decision. So I'm going to look at all the facts, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to line up the facts, and then I'm going to make a logical decision, and that's what's going to drive it. But what hate argues is that we are far more influenced by pathos, by, by emotions, than what we want to admit. And he uses this metaphor of the, the president and the press secretary. And he goes, if you talk about passion... We would like it to be like secondary, but in a lot of ways, passion is like the president. The president makes the decision, but then the press secretary has to spin whatever decision you want to make and make it sound good. Because for as much as we want to be cold, hard, rational like decision makers, we're more like emotional, passionate people who use our logic to spin what we already think. Now, whether you think that's right or wrong, I, that's immaterial. But I think with the point of what he is trying to get to is that the things that we do aren't always as logical as we think we are. And so what we do has a greater role than just what we think. Because our practices affect us in a deeper way than maybe we want to put on the table. Uh, for me, one of the things that, that, that really changed my spiritual vibrancy was when I was in college, and I had a, a really good friend of mine who said something that is 100% true, but it was the worst thing that anyone told me when I was in college. He told me that you don't have to read your Bible every day to be a good Christian. Now, that is 100% true. To read your Bible every day doesn't make you a good Christian, and not reading your Bible every day doesn't make you a bad Christian. 
100% true statement. I firmly believe that. But what I didn't understand was is that what the spiritual practice that most formed me when I was in high school was reading my Bible every day. Not because it necessarily gave me new information every day, but it tied me to the story that defined me. And when I stopped doing this practice because I thought I was not having to check a box to make God on my side, what I was oblivious to is that what I was doing was I was letting go of the boots that kept me afloat. What I was doing was I was stepping away from the story that was shaping my picture of the world. Because spiritual formation and, and these spiritually formative practices aren't a secondary piece that need to be added at all once we get our mind right. It's not like you, you start praying once you get God figured out and therefore you can have a relationship with God. But the way that you understand and experience God are all one in the same thing. And so when it comes to adversity with, with doubt and questions and, and skepticism, often we think, well, let me get all my ideas lined up first and then I'll start acting like a Christian. And what I would argue is, let's focus more on acting like a Christian. Behave your way into your belief. Does it make sense? Yeah? All right. Any idea? Like, questions? I'll stop here for a second. I thought um, in Genesis 4, he said uh, to uh, what's king, to Sue I think the, the comparison to uh, long-term investment. I, I remember when I was in, in uh, uh, undergrad, I took this uh, personal financial planning class. And the, the, like, the main point was just put money in there every month. Like, don't try to like, guess when it's going to be good or bad. Just every month and eventually down the road, you'll have something that, that's worthwhile. And I think the same way with spiritual practices. Like if you're just you, – when things are good, oh, I you know, listen to a sermon that I really like. Oh, you know, I'm going to pray the next morning. Or if things are really bad, I, I, I didn't get what I want, so I'm not going to uh, – you know practice confession or forgiveness, what you're doing is you're setting yourself up to, to not have something that you can draw upon when you really need it. Yeah, so I think that's, that's a good idea. Also, um, making that choice. Um, you hear this said a lot, especially in uh, relationships such as you're married, where it's a choice every day whether you love someone or you commit to something. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I think we forget that with our relationship with God, that we that, you know, Mother Teresa is a, a phenomenal example. She, if you read her memoir, she did not feel God's presence right. most of the time. In fact, I, I think she even said she never did. But she made the conscious choice of, I am going to follow God. This yeah. is what I'm going to do. And I think sometimes in the hard times, if we, 
and I, I speak as someone who says and struggles with doing, um, if we make that conscientious choice of doing the actions, then when we're doing things are tough, then all of a sudden our emotions don't guide us as much. And it's more, this is what I know I need to do. This is what I, you know, I'm making the choice to follow God. Yep. And I think it's important to remember that, that it is, it is truly a choice. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it's not always easy, but it is. Yeah, I, there's a Franciscan priest named Richard Rohr. You've heard of Richard Rohr? I, I, I had a conversation with him not too long ago, and he was talking about a, a very similar experience. And, and he talked about in the last you know, 10 years of his life, he, he's had a similar experience as you know, Mother Teresa, where she said, you know, if I'm ever a saint, it'll be a saint of darkness because you know, God feels distant from me. Like this prolonged dark night of soul kind of experience. And, and what Rohr was saying is that Often there's not a whole lot of teaching about darkness, especially in the evangelical church, which he would kind of, we're not Catholic, so that's basically all the same thing to him. But, uh, but there's not a lot of teaching. And he, has, he said, you know, for me personally, it's like I'm just putting one foot in front of the next. And it's sort of like the sweetness of, like, I'm new to Christianity and the feels. And all, it, it's just not, it, it's not the same. But, but it's the direction you're going. And this is, um, this is Peterson's, like, long obedience in the same direction. Where I'm going to put one foot in front of the next. And I don't always feel like it. I'm not always wanting to do it. But that's how you're going to get to where you need to go. Right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's muscle memory. muscle memory. After a while, you do that. What you do takes you in the right direction. Yeah, exactly. Or since you're going to count it, like a 10-key memory. Like you can just type those numbers in really well. But yeah, it's because what you do habitually becomes who you are. And... One of the things that, that happens when people struggle with faith is that they feel like they're, they're faking it. Like, I, I'm not all the way in this, so I'm just going to, like, back out because I don't want to be fake. Now, if you were married and you say, you know, I'm only going to, you know, if my wife said, you know, Luke, I'm only going to hug you and kiss you and tell you I love you when I really feel like it. Um, I, I know this is going to be, like, really earth-shattering for some of you, but sometimes I'm not the kind of husband that makes a wife always feel like saying, I love you and I'm going to give you a kiss. I know that's, that's earth-shattering for you to imagine, but... The reason my wife is, is, is an amazing wife is because she's committed to something. And so she continues to do not always what she feels like, but because this is who she wants to be. And so, yeah. Wouldn't you say that that's probably more of a belief system than the feelings? Because I think when we say that our living is based on our feelings, then we'll see just this end and flow of. Mm-hmm. But I kind of live on the premise that we live in mm-hmm. And I think that my feelings, more times than not, have I think the way I described what hate was trying to argue yeah. might have made that a little bit uh, obfuscated. What the whimsical emotions, like just going back and forth, like, hey, I don't feel like waking up and, and having silence this morning. Like that sort of like whimsy. Yeah, let's, let's not do that. I think what he was trying to articulate is that we're not as cold, hard, rational computers like we think we are. What I think you're articulating is like this is my belief, and it's not just this is who I want to be. Not, not just these are ideas that I have, but this is the direction. And I, like, I 100% co-sign that. Yeah, yeah. Hey, Alan. How are you? Good to see you. Yeah, I just want to say hi to you. So, uh, I was just going to say, it's also, I think, important for us to remember that things like believe 
love, hate, those aren't just nouns, those are verbs. Hmm. Um, Something that is a verb, you, you make a choice to make an action, you make a choice to love someone, you make a choice to hate someone, you make a choice to believe in something. Yeah, it's a choice. And I think it's really easy when everything around us is telling us, well, it, what makes you happy? Or, you know, all these things that, you know, verbal things, have it your way. Mm -hmm. you know, it's all about what makes you feel good. Sometimes it's not about that. It's about making, it's about that verb. It's about that action. Mm -hmm. And it's really easy to forget that those words, we think of them more as nouns, which are passive. We can't control how we, you know, we can't control them. Mm -hmm. When we realize that they are verbs that can that are associated with actions that are not dependent upon emotion sometimes, I think it changes the way we way we think about the choices we make. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I wish I would have known there was going to be a Burger King reference. Otherwise, <laughs> I would have just change my class title to Burger King Tron. Um, but you're right. Like it's they're choices we make, and I, and I think one of the the, the choices of, of spiritual formation is that. You don't do this alone. And in the same way that we don't want our whimsical emotions to dictate us, one of the best ways to prevent that is to not let yourself be aligned just with yourself and to have a larger group that can point you in the right direction. I, I, a friend named, or I have a friend named uh, Jason Michelli, and he is uh, he's a Methodist pastor in like the D.C. area, and uh, he's a foul-mouthed Methodist at, at that. And... Um, uh, prone to cynicism, um, and he was diagnosed with um, stage four cancer, and he's my age. He's got kids, and uh, it uh, he refers to it as stage serious cancer. And so, if, if you're already someone who's kind of prone to, to cynicism, and uh, you get dealt those cards, it would be real easy to just kind of check out and say I'm done. And he wrote a book uh, with an ironic title, which is Cancer is Funny, uh, something you can only write if you have stage serious cancer. Um, but he says in that book that uh, the community has robbed me of my cynicism. The community has robbed me of my cynicism. I've seen that, where you come to church with your questions and your struggles, and you sit down next to someone, and you go, I, I know exactly what they're going through. Not this kind of community where it's like, hey, we're just in a room, we don't know each other, but this is like people that I've invested myself in so that I know their stories. And for me personally, I, I see that. Like I sit down in church and I see someone who's kid, um, freshman college, passed away. And I see them sitting there in church and I go, okay, you're, you're still showing up. And you're like this, 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 uh, this pillar that I can kind of like help buttress my faith with. And I see people who've gone through terrible, adverse situations, and they continue to show up. And it's like that, um, I, I'm not an engineer, but it seems like with a teepee, you put like a bunch of pieces of wood, they all lean together, and none of them are staying up straight on their own, but if we all lean in together, somehow there is some sort of force that creates stability. And when we try to do faith by ourselves, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't usually work that well. Um, you know, the army had the slogan, become an army of one. Maybe the army can do that, but it seems like in church, if you try to be an army of one, you'll quickly become an army of none. It just doesn't work. But when you have a group of people that you, that you surround yourself with, you, you can be there. And there's this really 
problematic text in Matthew 28, I think it's like verse 16, 17, where the resurrected Jesus is there. And it says, some worshipped and others doubted. Like, this is the resurrected Jesus. Like, if anyone's going to be like, I get it. Like, I have it all figured out. Resurrected Jesus. Like, doubting Thomas had his wish fulfilled. And yet, there are still other doubters in the room. I'm not 100% sure about this. But here's the beauty of community. He said it was okay. Like, there's nothing where it said, yep, Jesus kicked those people out. It doesn't say like the rest of the community shunned them because they didn't have strong enough faith, but that somehow like they were all together. And there are moments I think each of us take that different role. And some of us are like, I'm worshiping today. And what you can be is, is the part that people lean on that day. And others, we take the role of those who doubt it. But if we're all in the community together, there's a difference of, of doubting and cynicism. Like, doubting means I'm here with God, I'm, I'm frustrated, I'm struggling, I don't know how I can trust Him. Cynicism says, I'm out. I'm not playing the game anymore. And the beauty of the community is that if you're in the community, your doubt doesn't have to turn into cynicism. But the community can be like the living testimonies for each other. You can be the living pillars that you can help lean against. And when you can do that, I think what helps, is, what that enables you to do is be okay without all the answers, right? Because we're not going to get it. Uh, I got an email uh, from um, uh, this guy in our church, um, and uh, Louis emails me, and he says, uh, Luke, this is kind of a, a random question, but um, I think about getting cremated after I die. Is that, is that bad? And I was like, I, like, I don't, I think that's okay. I don't really know, but I, I assume you're, you're okay. Now, if I was wrong about that, would I be disappointed? Not as much as Luke, but yeah, I would still be <laughs> disappointed. But yeah, like I, I think so. But I don't have all the answers. My uh, my wife's grandfather is uh, amazing man, Bud. That's what everyone calls him. And uh, Bud was a uh, state champion, 400 meter runner. He was in high school. Uh, was in the service. Um, but without a doubt, the best thing about Bud is the way that he uh, loved his wife the entirety uh, of her life, uh, despite the struggles that she had, and the way that he's loved uh, his three boys. Um, uh, and he asked me, uh, this is probably a year and a half, two years ago, his wife Shirley of almost half a century had just passed away. And uh, we're there at um, Christmas at uh, my wife's uncle's ranch. And he calls me, and he calls me Drifter because there was a movie in which uh, someone was a preacher and called him a drifter. I don't know. It was like Hank Williams Sr. or something. I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't really know. I just answered to it. Like he calls me and I just, yes, sir, I'll go. And he said, Drifter, come here. And he said he had a question. And... I've, I've been a preacher long enough that I know if someone has a question for me, it's rarely like, hey, Luke, how do you, uh, how do you take apart a carburetor? Like, it's never going to be like that. It's, I kind of get those questions. And he said to me, when I get to heaven, how am I going to recognize my servant? And if I'm in heaven, how, how can I know that my grandkids, my my wife, how can I know that my great-grandkids, those are obviously my kids, um, that they're okay? Because I can imagine being in heaven and being happy if, if I can't see them. 
And what I told him was, here's what I know about God. God is love. Scripture tells us over and over again that if you want to know what love is, look at God. If you want to know what God is, look at love. And I trust that God is love. And I don't have an answer for how it all works out. I don't know how, how you recognize, how, how you can understand what's going on with living if you're in the age to come. I, I, I don't know. But what I do know is God is love. And I trust that someone that's going to be okay. That's where a few months, it was like Easter. And we're at this barbecue place in Austin. And uh, <laughs> uh, my father-in-law goes up to Bud and uh, says, how you doing? And he was good. And he goes, you know, uh, I'm good. I, I wish Drifter would give me some more answers. But I'm good. It's like months after the question. He's still wondering. I, I wish I had more answers. But I feel like that's what faith is. Like, I, I, I wish someone gave me more answers. I wish I knew why God didn't live up to every definition of what I think a good God should be. But I'm okay with it. But I'm okay with it. All right, let me pray a prayer of blessing over you. And we'll get out of here. God, I thank you for being a God who is benevolent, who is loving, who at your essence is good. And God, help us in our unbelief to be aligned with you still. And God, help us to be your ministers of reconciliation for those that we love and care for, that are in the midst of, of doubts and discouragement and who feel tempted to abandon the faith. God, I pray that we could be the pillars that they can lean upon, that we could help show them ways of living and practices that can sustain them and tie them to the story of you becoming one of us and the person of Jesus of Nazareth, and you being the one to save us. And God, I pray that you would help us to display your goodness to those around us. I pray this in your name. Amen.